Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Susan Page has covered 11 national campaigns and six presidents for USA Today and Newsday. One of the most thoughtful journalists in Washington, she also moderated the recent vice presidential debate in the middle of this tumultuous campaign. I sat down with her yesterday to talk about that experience, the state of play 12 days out, and her own journey from Kansas to the top ranks of America's political journalists. Here's that conversation. Susan Page, great to see you. Um, you are uh, a master of debates now, <laughs> uh, a survivor of debates, a master yeah. of debates. Most people may hear this podcast after the final presidential debate tomorrow night, but we're talking the day uh, before. Um, one general question. I was thinking today, probably 45 million people will have voted by the time these two men step on the stage tomorrow night. We're 12 days out. Polls say virtually everyone has made up their minds. A small sliver of people haven't. How much do these? De- how much does this last debate matter? Well, there are reasons to think it doesn't matter very much, given these record number of people who have already cast their ballots, and given that the number of undecided or persuadable voters in America has got to be just vanishingly small. On the other hand, it's the biggest event we've got left. So, if anything is going to make a difference, it is this final debate and important both for how President Trump behaves. I think that first debate cost him something and also how Vice President Biden does. Uh, there are questions, you know, some voters have some questions about his his age or his ideology. And so it's a chance for him to to make a closing statement as well. But but you're right at this point in a campaign, especially with this campaign, um, most of it is cooked. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I this I woke up this morning thinking, who are the people who haven't decided? They're they're low information voters, and probably the least likely voters to be tuning into a presidential debate. Uh, now they may get sort of coverage of, or slivers of, or through digital media, some uh, section of, of the debate, but not not very likely. Yeah, that first debate uh, was rough, uh, and. Uh, Trump kind of self-immolated uh, there by overdoing it. His goal was to try and shake uh, Joe Biden up and uh, to to support his theory that Biden was too addled to to uh, warn uh, to to become president. But uh, obviously that didn't work, and he he completely overtorqued. Might it might he be more successful by not 
interrupting? I mean, that's the sort of theory you hear from Republicans. If he just sets back and, and makes Biden answer these two-minute questions and so on, and now he'll be muted during them. What do you think about that? So maybe Trump would be helped if Trump wasn't Trump. Exactly. Uh, you know? yeah, that is the problem, isn't it? <laughs> the idea you- that uh, that an aide or an advisor or a strategist or even a family member can say to, to Donald Trump, listen, you can't, you got to not do what you've done the previous 70 years of your life. <laughs> it just seems to me unlikely that that's ad- advice he'll take. I mean, it is true that four years ago he had a somewhat more disciplined close to his campaign than he said than he has this time. But, um, you know, Donald Trump has gotten this far, including election to the highest office in our nation by being himself. And for better or worse, that's who he is. And I think that's what he would say. Uh, you know, he would say, listen, if I listened to all the geniuses back in the day, I never would have gotten here. And I'm going to follow my instincts. His instincts have been the last few days to uh, pick fights with Dr. Fauci, walk out on Leslie Stahl, um, you know, all manner, of, you know, mock Gretchen Whitmer for being a victim of a domestic terror plot. It doesn't seem like a very focused way to to close a campaign. Um, and especially especially a campaign where you really need to get some women to come back and vote for you. Some women who maybe voted for you four years ago, but have had some questions. Uh, you know, these these attacks are quite out of sync, I think, with with what some of these voters that might have reluctantly voted for President Trump this time, for what it's different from what I think they have been looking to see. Yeah, well, I think the virus has certainly contributed to that. You know, my my thinking was that uh, you you could sit in focus groups, and I know you you do you you're exposed to all of this all the time. And up until this year, you heard people say, "Well, he's kind of a jerk, but the, things are going well." And, uh, you know, the economy's good and, you know, he's maybe he's kicking people in the ass who I think should be kicked in the ass. But now there's a cost associated with his idiosyncrasies and uh, that I think is really hurting him. You could see it among seniors in particular. So uh, let me ask you a question, Dave. If Mm -hmm. if uh, if the coronavirus had not developed, erupted in China and spread so so catastrophically across our country and the globe. And so the economy was like where it was in January. So not good for everybody in America, but pretty good for a lot of people. Unemployment, particularly record lows. Would Donald Trump be winning right now? I think it's a very good question. I think it would be close. It would be a close race. I wrote a piece a year ago saying, let Trump beat Trump and uh, postulating that, you know, there is Trump exhaustion. Uh, and the real question for 2020 isn't, are you better off than you were four years ago? It's, can we really do this for four more years? And I, I think that would have caught up with him to the point where we, it would have been a competitive uh, race. But I don't think he'd be in the kind of deficit position uh, he is right now because the, the virus has overtaken our country and now we see it spiking again. Uh, and, you know, our lives have been changed by it and his minimization of it, his uh, downplaying of it in the face of all evidence, including his own illness, uh, I, is, is, is a real brick on him, I think. But, uh, but you know, I think there were other, other issues that would have uh, come to the fore. And, you know, my view, I'm interested in yours, Susan, is that, you know, 
you can see now why Trump almost why why he bought himself an impeachment trying to stop stop Biden from becoming the nominee because in certain ways Biden is the worst possible mm-hmm. opponent for Trump. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. I've, I've actually covered all three of Joe Biden's presidential campaigns. Uh, some of them have been kind of short. This one has been <laughs> more successful. He's, you know, there are, there are ways in which he's not a great candidate, right? He can be a little goofy. Um, he is kind of prone to gaffes. Uh, sometimes he talks too long. Uh, and it turns out to be kind of the perfect antidote, antidote to uh, President Trump at this moment. Uh, he turns out to be quite, quite tailored for the race uh, in which he finds himself running. He, he absolutely is. And, I, you know, I'm a big believer that uh, people choose the remedy to what they have. And so whatever the most pronounced uh, perceived negatives of the, the incumbent are, um, you know, the challenger who emerges and is successful is a challenger who represents the antidote, the antithesis uh, of that. And, you know, Biden, whatever his shortcomings, kind of radiates a sort of decency, uh, empathy, he he uh, has regard for institutions and norms and rules, um, and he's a calming uh, influence. Uh, and uh, all those things play against uh, against Trump. Uh, let me ask you about the debates and how you you just moderated the vice presidential debate. Tell me how you prepared for that. I mean, did you you watch that first debate, right? And so you yeah. oh, oh yeah. How did that shape your thinking about the second one? So uh, I did watch the first debate, um, and uh, I thought that uh, Chris Wallace had a really impossible task. Um, not the debate he expected, and um, one that just left, I think, him and viewers feeling kind of battered. So one of the things I did in preparation did you say, was to did, talk- Let me just interrupt and say, did, did you say to yourself, holy shit, what did I get myself into? <laughs> No, actually, I didn't. I really, I was so looking forward to this debate, and I and I love doing it. And I've, it, even though you know, there's a lot of criticism that has come after it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sorry. So no, I didn't think that. I didn't think that. But I did think, how can I have a different kind of debate than that? And of course, in some ways, uh, my cards were better because I had uh, Vice President Pence, not President Trump. Vice President Pence. Um, less disruptive a debater than than President Trump, and also you know somewhat lower stakes. The stakes are lower in a vice presidential debate than in a presidential one. Although there were some reasons to think that this vice presidential debate uh, was relatively important, uh, both because uh, these two vice presidential candidates are tied to presidential candidates who are of record age. 74 and uh, 77 at the moment, and also because I think most Americans didn't have a good sense of Senator Harris. Uh, you know, she hadn't really been on the national scene uh, for an extended period of time. So it was very important for her to look confident and competent so people felt okay about voting for Biden. They didn't have yeah. to worry about who his number two was. So I thought that way it was relatively important, but still the stakes were lower than, it, than they were uh, in the presidential debate. And I was very... I was very concerned about having a civil debate. And I talked to Chris Wallace. Chris gave me great advice. You know, Chris has done uh, a presidential debate before. He did one four years ago. He's a very skilled interviewer. I talked yeah, about what great. he thought, what I should, what, what, what could make a difference. Uh, and in fact, I talked to all the living uh, people, all the people who have moderated presidential and vice presidential debates in the past for their thoughts about it about how to do it. And that was, that was very useful. I did something else. I went off social media 
Uh, <laughs> and that turned out healthy. to be really crucial. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was very healthy. It cleared my mind. Uh, yeah. My And when one of my kids was... Uh, not deliberately, but he was watching social media and he kept telling me, don't go on there. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> so, you, yeah. Yeah. So you, um, you're right about the two, uh, you know, Pence is not Trump, although he, he, he was more like Trump than he, than he was in the past. I mean, I remember the 2016 debate and he was, uh, a little more, he would, you know, he, he wasn't unaggressive, but he, was mostly counterpunching because Tim Kaine was quite aggressive in that uh, debate. Uh, in this debate, he was interrupting uh, more than I think he had in the past. Um, and and this is the thing that you that you got criticized for. Um, th- there was a serial evasiveness going on, mostly on his side, a little bit on 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 Senator Harris's side around the court uh, uh, issue. And people wondered, knowing you as, you know, one of the really great reporters in Washington and a very experienced uh, uh, questioner, why you didn't follow up when, and I've seen your explanations for it, which makes sense to me, but I wanted you to talk about that. So one of the things I tried to think about uh, before the debate was what was my role? What was I supposed to do? Um, Because I really felt like this was, you know, this was not doing a story for a newspaper or um, some other purpose. This was for the purpose of facilitating a debate in an important election for voters to see. And the debate commission and most of the previous moderators spoke, uh, emphasized the idea that you're not there. It's different from doing an interview and it's different from being at a news conference and that your role is really to try to pose a question that they hopefully will answer, you know, you know, shaped in such a way it makes it harder for them to evade, although clearly it wasn't impossible for them to ignore the question I ask, Um, and then facilitate a conversation between them uh, so that they would challenge each other and interact with each other. And um, that, you know, there was more evasion, particularly from Vice President Pence than I had expected. Um, But, you know, it's not one thing I've learned in doing uh, campaign election coverage all these years, yeah, and especially 11 of them. in yes, eleven of them, especially in doing callbacks on our polling, which I've done a lot of, uh, is that Americans are pretty smart, voters are pretty smart, and I didn't think that I thought that voters would recognize when a question was being not answered or evaded or dodged, or when a candidate was being rude or uncivil. I mean, it's not that uh, they didn't necessarily need me to to tell them that. That said, um, I, I, I recognize the criticism. There, somebody else might have handled this in a, in a different way. I, I did, uh, I was heartened. Let me just mention two things I was heartened by. Yeah. Uh, one was uh, Axios and SurveyMonkey did a poll of debate watchers right after the vice presidential debate and asked them one word that described the debate. And the number one word that was given most frequently was civil. Mm-hmm. And the number two word that was given was informative. And if you had asked me before the debate, what is your yeah. goal for that poll? I would have said civil and informative. And one other thing that this and this goes to CNN, the platform on which we see you so frequently 
One of the things that alarmed me, like in the first 15 minutes of the debate, was how much time Mike Pence was eating up. And that in the first 15 minutes, Pence talked a lot more than Kamala Harris. And I knew that because I had these clocks right yeah. before me that showed the cumulative time yeah. each time they were speaking. And yeah, one but of you the things la- I- you landed you landed the yeah. ship though, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I focused um, hard. Uh, for the rest of the debate to make sure they had about equal time to speak. And the CNN count, which I will never forget, was Mike Pence, 36 minutes and 27 seconds, and Kamala Harris, 36 minutes, 24 seconds. And yeah. so I'm, I cannot be criticized for him getting more time to talk, although I recognize the criticism that I didn't make him talk more responsibly to the questions I was asking. Look, I, I actually, I thought, you, you know, at first I was thinking, man, why, why not follow up? I saw your explanations and they made sense to me. And, and the truth of the matter is, I mean, I, I've, you know, I do a lot of this. So um, I find myself not pursuing things that I know I'm not going to get an answer to uh, because it just wastes time. And if a person, you're right, if a person is evasive, people, people know that. And in fact, if you look at some of the focus groups and polling that followed the debate, Pence paid a price in that debate for being evasive. It was the thing that people noted uh, about his performance. Um, so you're right. You know, give people credit. They they have eyes. They have ears. They have brains. They can see what's uh, what's going on. I, you know, I, I think history will record that you did a that you did a good job uh, in 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 a tough situation. I will say on the question of civil. After that first presidential debate, I think, you know, uh, if they didn't draw knives and guns on each other, the, the, the debate would have appeared <laughs> civil after that first one. And you're right. It'll be interesting to see uh, tomorrow night if Trump can uh, restrain himself. Um, what you know, one, one uh, thing just that- one thing. So you're saying that the bar on civil was pretty low. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I do say that. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's good that people felt that way. Um, uh, you know, uh, the commission after these uh, two debates, because tr- uh, there was interruption, there were interruptions, mostly from Pence in your debate. They've f- implemented a, a, a sort of modified mute button uh, situation where um, when each candidate is giving their first two-minute answer, the other candidate's mic will be muted. Uh, and, you know, we saw a situation in the first debate. They were sniping at each other, uh, but, uh, again, more from the president. And it was uh, Biden. It was like Biden had to speak with a heckler in his ear uh, for much of the debate. Do you – but I saw somewhere that you had you had some – concerns about mute buttons of any kind. Mm -hmm. Tell me, tell me why. Well, one concern I have is like when the suggestion was the moderator should have a mute button, who am I to mute the president of the United States or the democratic nominee to be president? Some would say a hero, Um, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I I take your point. It says you have to, you'd have to make subjective uh, decisions in the moment that would look, uh, to partisans of one right, candidate yeah. or the other, as as uh, and the candidates would have made that point. The other concern I had was, even though if you mute the mic, you don't like, uh, he's still in the room. And so if President Trump continues to heckle 
Joe Biden, Biden will still hear it and potentially be thrown off balance. And we'll probably hear it, too, through secondary sound, through um, Biden's mic. So it's not a perfect solution. But I really understand how the debate commission, uh, which I salute, by the way, uh, for um, managing to pull off debates. Um, I understand the debate commission's desire to just do something to make a more productive conversation uh, for voters. And uh, and I know that Kristen Welker, the moderator for tomorrow night's debate, is thinking hard about that, too. And I, I feel I, I know she'll she's going to do a great job. You, you I, I presume you've spoken with her. I have. Yes. Uh, and I told her good luck because, you know, I had Mike Pence, but you've got Donald Trump. Yeah. No, it's a terribly <laughs> difficult uh position to be placed in. Let me, uh, I mean, you've said, you know, you've said kind things about the debate commission and many of them are my friends uh, uh, as well. And I have respect for the people on that commission. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of disquiet about that first debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering if the debate commission as an institution, you know, there's so many institutions have been shaken by this. I'm not sure that the Iowa caucuses can survive uh, what happened. Oh, I don't think. Do you yeah. think we'll see presidential caucuses again in Iowa? I don't think no. so. Well, and I don't know that Iowa will be first in the nation. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that that was a, uh, a, a really seismic event, their inability to, uh, to come up with a winner for a week. Uh, so, um, but the question is, do you think that this debate, for, this, this kind of format will survive that where the debate commission are sort of custodians of the presidential debates uh or are we going to see a departure from that well tell me who gets selected uh in a week and a half um but i hope i hope it does you know when of course it's not an official it's got they've got no official powers right it's a group of people that who have designated themselves as custodians of the presidential debates and that's in part just to try to provide some kind of infrastructure that sets an expectation that the candidates will debate. Nothing requires candidates to debate, and particularly incumbent presidents are sometimes not eager to debate, as you know for from good your reason. own experience. Yes, for good reason. But yeah. it's good for democracy yeah, if they debate and what, if there's an no, expectation no that they debate. So, one, th you know, I know the commission has gotten some criticism, and I know they're trying to look at how things worked and didn't work, but, you know, God forbid we don't have them and that the expectation is no longer there's no framework for the expectation that presidential candidates must debate. Um, that would I think that would be uh, I think that would be a big loss. You know, this is the one time the two candidates are side by side, asked being asked direct questions, not by a friendly interviewer, not in a campaign ad that they control. So let's try not to lose that, even if there are some, even if there's some unhappiness about some of the things that went on this year. Yeah, I agree. You know, uh, I, I joke about presidents, not, but I mean, presidents almost invariably uh, fail in the first debate because uh, they are in a defensive mode. They're not used to having someone in their grill treated as an equal. Uh, and um, uh, but I, I will say there was never a thought on our part when I worked for President Obama that we wouldn't debate because it is. Uh, it is a norm that uh, of our democracy that these candidates should appear on a stage together. So uh, I hope it's one. Uh, I hope it's one that we continue. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. 
And now, back to the show. Let me ask you about yourself. You, you come from Kansas. You, you came from, it, it sounds like sort of a white bread kind of <laughs> upbringing. Uh, uh, your, your dad was... Uh, you, the, you, don't, you don't mean that in a bad way, right? No, I, I mean, like white no, bread. entirely. No, white, a lot of people do. They sell a lot of white bread. Uh, no, I didn't. There's no judgment attached to it. Um, I mean, I grew up in New York City, so I, we, I had a different sort of uh, upbringing at about the same time. Um, but uh, interestingly, I mean, you 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 had two dual interests. <laughs> one was music. You were an oboist, and and one was journalism. Um, I'll, I'll deal with the music in a second, but uh, I know less about it. But uh, tell me why you were attracted to journalism. Uh, first of all, tell me a little bit about your upbringing and your hometown, and then tell me what about journalism attracted you. You know, I'm not just from Kansas. I'm like 100% Kansas. My my mom I grew up on a farm in Brown County, which my cousin now farms, and my dad I grew up in El Dorado, uh, where he was in uh, where he was an orphan um, and barely escaped going to the state home for orphan boys, which sounds like a, hmm. a pretty bleak place. Yeah. So we're glad he escaped that. Um, and when, I, when I, I was born and raised in Wichita, and until I landed at Northwestern, landed in Chicago and went to my Shepherd dorm at North on the Northwestern campus, I had never spent a night outside Kansas. It was my first time. I read. I read that you. I read you went to a camp and set one foot in Oklahoma. Is that right, or is that a? Well, yes, that's right. We our campfire girl camp, Camp Kohami. uh, You would walk down the highway, and then the camp counselor would say, "Now that's Oklahoma," and so you've got a foot on both sides. Now there was no sign there, so possibly they just gotten (laughs) tired of walking south. Um, Once my uh, my I was with my family in Kansas City, and my father drove across the bridge to say, so we could say we had been in Missouri, but I don't think I actually got out of the car. So, uh, yes. So, so going to Northwestern, um, which I had not visited, uh, before, uh, arriving there as a freshman, that was a pretty transformative uh, event in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. Did you say this, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto? Is that the, was that the, so don't ever say that to someone from Kansas. Okay. And, <laughs> you know, I thought I had grown up thinking I was from Wichita. It's the biggest city in the state. And I got to Northwestern and no one was impressed by that. <laughs> so the the others views. You also got there at a time that, that was a pretty tumultuous time. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was the year after the Democratic Convention blew up there and. Uh, time of great activism, Vietnam War activism, and so on. You, you, you arrived there in a really, really interesting time. Yeah, no, no place better to be. Chicago Seven trial. I mean, now, I mean, it was remarkable. And of course, Chicago is just such a great city. So it definitely, I, but what it did do, no question, it definitely broadened my horizons. Did you? Um, was politics a thing in your home? Uh, what, did you guys talk about it? Did you talk about news? I, I'm just trying to get to you. You are an intrepid news person and, and <laughs> a great journalist, and you and you have been for for a long time. And I'm wondering where that where that because you went to Northwestern presumably mm-hmm. in part because you knew that it had mm-hmm. a superior journalism school. You know, David, there are some people I think who um, walk into a hospital and they know they 
but better be, uh, they have, they have to be a doctor or a nurse, or they walk into a classroom and they just know that's the place where they're meant to be. And that's how I felt like when I walked into my first newsroom um, at Wichita Southeast High School, it was like, what could be more fun, more rewarding, more important than doing this? Why? Uh, and why, why, I, do you, why did you feel that way? Because you, your, your job is to go look at interesting things and ex- make sense of them to other people. Like what could be better? I mean, seriously, what could be better? But I know that people who were born to be teachers or librarians or politicians, I think they feel the same way. I think, isn't it, the, isn't it so lucky, those of us who found something that we just feel like there's nothing else we would rather be? Yeah, well, I spent my first, uh, uh, the first 10 years of my career in journalism, and uh, I always say that I went to the University of Chicago and I was educated in the Chicago Tribune newsroom. <laughs> um, so I... And, you, you know, your mom was a reporter, right? She, she must was have really for, been a for, gra- for PM in New York yes. in uh, the 1940s. It was uh, Marshall Field owned it. It was a kind of a left-wing newspaper. Um, I.F. Stone was there and Max Lerner. And the uh, cartoonist was uh, 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 Ted Geisel, who uh, became Dr. Seuss. Um, but she was, yeah, she was a young, she had been a journalist at NYU, and she kind of fought her way into that newsroom and um, and was one of the first women, you know, general assignment reporters uh, in a big, in, in a New York City newsroom. So she was, uh, yeah, journalism was sort of around, but, but had it, but yours was just uh, walking into the newsroom at your high school. Yeah. Well, my, one of my older brothers had, had started to get interested in journalism. And so I was kind of, that was encouraging to me, but not, it wasn't, my father was a businessman uh, who mostly viewed journalists with great disdain and <laughs> uh, hopefully less so once two of his children went into that field. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, but there's a just, lot of that um, going around now, you know. <laughs> I should ask you, that just to bracket, mm-hmm. uh, just, just to depart for a second from, from your story, um, as someone who spent your life in journalism, Describe the environment today um, and how you see your job and how people see journalists and the sort of chasm between those two things that the president has obviously turbocharged. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's different. It's very different now than it's been at previous parts of my um, career. There's much less trust and faith in journalists uh, there is uh, an assumption of bias. Uh, there's um, uh, a new suspicion, I think. Uh, and this erosion, Donald Trump didn't create this erosion. It had been going on for some time, but he certainly captured it and exacer- has exacerbated it. And as someone who, you know, I think of journalism as a fundamental part of our democracy. Our democracy does not work, I don't think, without active and healthy journalism to hold it accountable um, and to have the president of the United States call the press the, the enemy of the people is, uh, is something I find really uh, alarming. And I think that we as journalists have an obligation to try to rebuild trust among those who have lost it in the, in the work that we do. Can that be done uh, in the modern media environment? I mean, I revere journalism, and I still consider myself uh, someone who has one foot in that world. And 
I agree with you completely. If there isn't, if there aren't journalists to shine bright lights in dark corners, uh, and uh, you know, think how much we wouldn't know about what's going on in our own government today, if not for the reporting that's being done, and uh, what what's how much we would not know about this virus, <laughs> you know, if uh, not for the reporting that's being done. Uh, so, but with the sort of siloing of of media interests, people choosing media outlets that reflect their uh, point of view. I always say that, you know, that affirm their views, but don't necessarily inform their views. Um, how do you get the genie back in the bottle? So we need to, we need to figure that out. And it's the same task that public officials face um, and that, uh, that other institutions uh, in our society that have seen faith in them eroded need to face. I think we do it uh, not with, there's not one thing we're going to do that's going to uh, address that. We need to do it uh, a day at a time, uh, a reader or a viewer at a time, a story at a time. We need to do it by being very careful to be accurate and to be fair and to be transparent. You know, journalism is much more transparent now than it was when I got into the field. Um, and that's a good thing uh, because we need to make the case to readers and viewers that they can trust what we're telling them. Do you think... Uh as an observer of um, of the, the media world, um, does the does the president do his supporters have any um, any right to complain? Do you do you see editorially uh, do you see editorial commentary kind of seeping into coverage in a way that worries you? Well, there's there's all kinds of journalism, right? Uh, and there's opinion journalism, or there's journalism that's 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 uh, based on reporting, but has a strong point of view. Someplace like Mother Jones. Mother Jones does some great reporting. It's got a point of view. Um, the journalism that I want to do uh, isn't that. It's journalism that is pretty much down the middle. That doesn't mean it's not tough. It means that it uh, doesn't assume that one side or the other side has um, has all the answers, uh, and that uh, not one side or the other side is full of evil, and the other side is good. That everything, things are just more complicated than that. And one of the characteristics, I think, of the best journalists I know are those who are able to see shades of gray in, in almost everything. Once in a while, you'll have a story that has that is pretty black and white, but most of the time, uh, it's more shades of gray. And the ability to recognize that and convey that, I think, is something that builds trust on both sides, that you're worth reading and you're worth trusting. Yeah, you know, there, there, there's another theory, which is that if you do that kind of reporting, if you are straight down the middle, if you do see shades of gray, that you frustrate people on both sides. <laughs> and maybe that's the right thing, you know. Uh, when I left uh, my, my job as the Seahawks bureau chief in Chicago, some old hack alderman from the northwest side came up to me and said well you screwed us but you screwed them too so i figured you're fair uh and i thought so well that's, that's okay i can take that that's exactly the attitude you want that's the response you want uh and there's i think it's less it's a less forgiving environment now i think social media's had something to do with that and the kind of uh, balkanization of outlets so that it's possible to watch something that only tells you things you agree with. I think that's contributed to. It's extraordinary to watch uh, Fox News sometimes and some of the other outlets and um, just the just the, the gulf between how stories are covered or not covered. 
Um, and if you were just to watch one, uh, and a lot of Republicans, you, Fox News is their principal source of, uh, of information. Democrats are more, are more uh, spread over several outlets. You can see where uh, memes grow and gain, gain uh, you know, there's a reason why the president and all of his supporters spend so much time on that outlet. I mean, they're talking to their audience and uh, and consistently. So you uh, you were a editor of the Daily Northwestern, which actually is a, a, a kind of storied college uh, uh, college newspaper. I read that you got into a jam because you uh, were the only paper in Illinois who didn't endorse <laughs> Senator Charles Percy, who was a uh, incumbent Republican senator in 1972. Now, my, do you remember Roman Roman Puchinski? Oh my goodness, I him? knew Roman Puchinski well. He was Percy's opponent. He was a former journalist, you know. He that's he know was that. a reporter at the Chicago Sun Times, and and uh, and Mayor Daley uh, tapped him uh, to I think first run for alderman, then he ran for uh, Congress in the '60s, and and I think Daley knew that Percy wasn't going to be beaten in '72. Maybe I don't I don't know what all the machinations were. But he kind of threw Puchinski into the Senate race as a uh, as a sacrificial lamb there, and Percy got every endorsement but one in the whole state of Illinois, and that one was the the Daily Northwestern. And can I ta- can I tell you the story why? Why? Because um, you know we were we were going to make endorsements. I'm not sure how much the Daily Northwestern <laughs> endorsement mattered in these races, but and we went back and Chuck Percy. Um, admirable figure in many ways, had been coming on campus for years making speeches, portraying himself as a very different figure than when he was actually casting votes in Washington. And um, he had, he had uh, you know, kind of misrepresented how he would vote, we thought, uh, when he came on campus and talked to students. And so that seemed hypocritical. And we had no, we had no great truck with Roman Puchinski, uh, <laughs> but we thought, well, we don't want to endorse someone who's been dishonest to to students at Northwestern. And so we wrote this editorial endorsing Roman Puchinski. And unbeknownst to me, Percy was then running an ad uh, saying every newspaper, that's <laughs> every daily newspaper that's endorsed in the state has endorsed me. And they had to pull the ad. And so I'm in the, I'm in the daily Northwestern. Did you ask them to pull to- the ad? No, no, I was unaware they had the ad, but somebody, <laughs> uh, maybe the Roman, Roman Puchinski. Roman T. Puchinski <laughs> juggernaut. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, I'm in the office at the Daily Northwestern one night, and in walks this entourage of officialdom. This, I mean, we're there in jeans and, you know, uh, sweatshirts. And in walks this parade of maybe 15 men in dark suits. At the end of the, <laughs> this, this uh, the senator, the Senator Percy. And they had come to complain that we had not asked for an editorial board session with them before making the endorsement. And to be truthful... It had never occurred to us that Senator Percy would entertain the idea of an editorial board session with the Daily Northwestern. And I told him that and I said, but, you know, thank you very much. And I'm sorry we didn't invite you to an edit board. That is uh, that it's pretty remarkable, actually. It shows you the power of the Daily Northwestern Mm -hmm. that you could command these 15 (laughs) operatives. Uh, uh, So um, you went on to Newsday um, and. You covered some small towns on Long Island, uh, but you pretty quickly got into government reporting. I guess you went to Albany for a while, a uh, brief time, and then you went on the national 
on the national desk. I'm trying to, I'm, you, you're so identified with political coverage uh, for, as we said, 11 presidential campaigns starting in <laughs> 1980. H- how, did you, how did you get attracted to that? Well, I actually th- thought um, that there were various things I could, I just wanted to be a reporter. Uh, I didn't necessarily want to be a government reporter or a Washington reporter. But what happened was there was an opening, an opening in our Washington Bureau, the Newsday Washington Bureau. Marty Schramm, who you probably yeah, know, sure. uh, had, had gone from Newsday to the Washington Post creating an opening. And I applied for the opening, not for the job he had. He had been bureau chief, but I applied for the reporter opening that had been created uh, and and got it. And I came to Washington in 1979. First, that Newsday sent me to Southeast Asia to cover the exodus of boat people from Vietnam, wow. uh, which was an incredible, incredible experience. experience. And I, yeah. right, uh, and definitely a sink or swim kind of experience. And came back to Washington and went on the presidential campaign, um, covered Jimmy Carter's last campaign trip, which was kind of a death march. And uh, then just started covering the White House and politics. And at this point, I have, you know, no other skills. So, I'm very grateful we continue to hold elections. <laughs> Tell me about the, the some of the presidents that you uh, covered. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, mm-hmm. being the first. Um, he has a sort of mythical uh, status. Now I was reminded of, of some of that. Uh, there was uh, Pete Souza has a new documentary called um, uh, The Way I See It. And he was the White House photographer for both Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama, which is really extraordinary. But tell me, through your lens, uh, what you saw in Ronald Reagan. So one of the lessons, of of course, I didn't know anything. So God forbid anyone go back and look at my coverage of that election. (laughs) But, uh, you know, one thing I've learned, and unfortunately, I've had to learn this over and over again, is just don't assume. Don't assume you know what's going to happen. That's an important lesson for a reporter. Oh, man, because the assumption in 80 was Reagan couldn't possibly win. The Carter people were delighted when Reagan emerged as a nominee. I had to learn that again when Barack Obama did so well uh, in a presidential campaign that people thought how a guy named Barack Hussein Obama, a, a, a black man, is going to win the presidency. You know, the assumption was that wasn't likely. And I had to learn it again in 2016 when uh, when Donald Trump won. That's an imp- that is an important lesson. Uh, you know, uh, Gary Hart uh, told me back in 1987, I'll never forget it. People ask me, what's the best advice you ever got? It was in 1987 and Gary Hart told me, just remember Washington's always the last to get the news. <laughs> and it was such That's a true. smart observation, yeah. you know, because we we too tend to see things through an elite lens uh, and talk to each other in the political world. And the American people are seeing something entirely different. And that was certainly true in, in 1980. And the debate, the one debate they had in 1980, uh, really sealed the deal. Uh, the, the country had decided they wanted to fire Jimmy Carter. They weren't sure about Ronald Reagan. And he allayed their concerns in that one debate, and the bottom dropped out of that race. Yeah. yeah. And there are some parallels between uh, 1980 and, and this election, I think. Um, to watch for. You know, before we talk about presidents, you know, I have to offer an apology to you. Oh, my goodness. Uh, because I played kind of a trick on you, which I've never told you, which is when you made it to the White House, 
you invited my husband, Carl Lubsdorf, and myself to have lunch in the mess, in the White House mess. And we both knew, but we didn't think you knew that reporters were not allowed to be invited to the White House mess, that there was a time long ago when reporters could be taken there, but uh, that had long gone by the boards on the assumption that reporters were annoying and they would eavesdrop. And and we didn't tell you this because we were so thrilled at the idea of being able to go to the White House mess. So you took us to lunch in the White House mess where we had what I remember to be a pretty terrible lunch. I think yeah, it was a taco that would, salad. That sound, so far, that sounds like accurate reporting. And and it's not that fancy a place, as you know, it's not that fancy a place. But then we could go around the rest of our lives saying, you know, as I told David Axelrod when we had lunch in the White House mess, and I'm always wondered if you were rebuked afterwards about taking two reporters to the White House mess. Never. Never. Never? Never. Oh, well, good. No, I guess that was the beginning of the shredding of norms (laughs) at the White House. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You, you covered Reagan, both Bushes, you know, uh, and, and, and Ford. Uh, and you were at the White House for a long time, 14 years for Newsday and then, uh, and then for USA Today. Um, tell, me, uh, tell me about covering those presidents and the differences between them. So they're, they're all different. I started with the Reagan White House and have, have covered to one degree or another uh, all the presidents since then. I've done less. I bet there was a point for about 20 years where I did daily coverage where I was at the White House almost every day. That's not what I do anymore. But I still write about about the White House and, mm-hmm. and politics. They're they're uh, they're different. They're they're. One thing I assumed early on was that if you worked at the White House, you had to be a very godlike figure. You must be just extraordinary, um, whether you're a president or a top aide. And I discovered that wasn't necessarily true. Uh, and it was more like when I covered Smithtown Town Hall on Long Island, you know, the, the skills and observations I made there translated very well to the White House. But I also learned how driven and remarkable you have to be to become president. Uh, now that may not be true for Gerald Ford, who I didn't cover and who came into the presidency in a kind of side door way, but, um, these are really, uh, as a rule, people who are remarkable in one way or another and in, and in different ways. Um, uh, also the enormous soft power, what we call soft power of the presidency. Presidents have a lot of hard power, of course, because they can start war they can, launch wars and uh, set big policies. But the soft power is remarkable and important. And it's it's really on soft power grounds. I think some people have, some Americans have so much disquiet about President Trump, the soft power of setting a standard for the nation, the soft power of being a healing voice at a time of national trauma. I, I interviewed yesterday Robert Griffin, who is head of something called the Democracy Project, which has a huge amount of polling. And he was talking about how um, human qualities that Joe Biden has this huge advantage of 20 or 30 points, percentage points, when it comes to decency or uh, empathy, other human values that voters look for. And I said, you know, Donald Trump did not display these qualities four years ago, and he won. What's different this time? And what's different this time, he thought, was the pandemic and the economic consequences of that. And he said, 
empathy is on the ballot. Uh, and I thought that was I thought that was about right. I think that's true. It's also true that if Trump had those qualities, then they wouldn't mean as much in Biden. Uh, you know, again, the contrast is what drives uh, these choices. And it's so stark in this regard. I mean, Trump doesn't really even pretend uh, on that score. Um, so, um, but, uh, but, uh, but again, let's talk about the guys that you did cover, uh, that you covered in the past. Um, uh, what, what was the single thing that stood out to you about Reagan covering Reagan, the single, whether it was a story or a quality or what was the thing that you would, your big takeaway? So his, his ability to connect, I mean, he could really, you know, he was a very, in a way, very private person. Yes. Uh, someone who didn't really have good friends. He had one friend, Nancy Reagan. Yeah. One real friend. And yet he could connect with Americans in a way that made them feel like he understood them and was speaking to them. Uh, you know, I think Luke Cannon said that, I think this is a quote from Luke Cannon, that Reagan said, um, people say, how can an actor be president? And Reagan said, how can someone who's not an actor be president? Because you need to have, be able to kind of project and connect that way. That that was one thing Reagan could do. You know, Mike Deaver, who was his, uh, his media kind of advisor, um, uh, told me when he was governor that Tom Brokaw was coming up to do a uh, a piece on him, and Deaver mapped out on Butcher Block how the day was going to go. And he said, and at noon you're going to go down to the plaza and you're going to throw your coat over your shoulder and you're going to talk to people having lunch. And Reagan looked at the whole wall and he said, everything's good but the lunch thing. And Deaver said, what's wrong with that? He said, because I never take my coat off. And if I do, uh, people will know it will... I'll be uncomfortable and people will read that. The camera will read that. Find another, find another thing to do here. And I thought, wow, that's, that is a sophisticated level of self-awareness and awareness of how these interactions happen. Um, what about the Bushes? You, you wrote a book about Barbara Bush, the first lady, George H.W. Bush's uh, wife. Um, that was really r revealing. And, but you obviously in the process of, I want to talk about that in a second, but in the process of that, you obviously learn more about, uh, about him. And you also covered his son. And they, they, they were quite different. They were very different. I mean, really, um, George W. Bush is really much more like his mother uh, in some fundamental ways than like his father, even though he looks just like his father. Uh, you know, George H.W. Bush was... Uh, a hugely courteous man. He was really, uh, uh, that, that was a trait uh, that he had. And he, he also was the right, I think, the, sometimes we're lucky in America. He was the right president for that moment to handle the uh, end of the Cold War. He really handled that. That was right up his, that was in his wheelhouse. Right. Uh, he had vast international experience. In, yeah. And, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're lucky to have had him there, but he wasn't the right president for the next moment when Americans were so concerned about some of the things going on in their own life. And that's when yeah, the, uh, we had Bill a terrible Clinton turned recession, out to be the yeah. right moment. Yeah. yeah. We had a terrible recession and he didn't seem to be aware of it. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, when Barbara Bush told me that when they moved back to Houston, you know, involuntarily with after he lost re-election, she was shocked by... This was actually, this was in her diary. This wasn't something she told me. She was shocked by how much groceries cost. You'd spend $100 at the grocery store and you'd have two bags. And that she wanted to buy a 
Mercury car, which is, I think, a, just a modest, you know, medium price car. And she couldn't believe how much it would cost. And I thought, you know, if they had had a little more of that awareness uh, during the campaign, he might have fared better. Uh, you wrote in your book about her that she really struggled. Uh, you know, she had she did not reveal much of herself. I mean, she was very uh, clear on her views on some things. Um, but people thought of her as this grandmotherly, silver-haired uh, figure. But she struggled with depression uh, and a real um, s- struggle with sense of place and who she was and where she belonged in ways that were uh, surprising uh, to me. Yes, she contemplated suicide at one point. Uh, she, When they came back from China, where George Bush had been the top U.S. Uh, official in China, they came back, he took over the CIA. Um, and uh, she told me that she fell into a depression so deep that she would be driving down the road and think about plowing into a tree or or steering your car into the lane, oncoming lane, and she would have to pull off the road and stop and take a moment before then driving on. And this was uh, something that uh, she did not reveal at the time or, or since. I, I remember I interviewed her brother, uh, her, her brother Scott, um, for the book, and I said, were you aware of the struggle she had at that time? And he said, that's just not true. That can't be true. So even all these years later, I, I'm so, I, my, my dad committed suicide and I talk about mm-hmm. suicide a lot. And um, the, you know, the, the thing that aids and abets this black force is uh, the inability to communicate to others what you're going through and the inability to reach out for help. And so mm-hmm. it's really valuable, frankly, that you wrote that and that she was willing to reveal that to you, uh, because there are a lot of people in this country and we read. Uh, right now, in particular during this pandemic, who are really struggling uh, with depression and with suicidal uh, thoughts. And it's so important for them to understand this is a pervasive thing. It is an illness. Uh, You can come through it. And it's important to acknowledge it and get help. So I'm glad that you, I'm so glad that you focused uh, uh, some on that in the book. And kudos to her for sharing it. Uh, with you, Bill Clinton, um, uh, quite a quite a contrast with uh, George Bush in some ways. Yeah, uh, and a guy who loved you know the thing about Clinton. Number one, he was incredibly available. He was really focused. He thought USA Today was a great outlet for him yeah, to yeah. reach the kind of voters he wanted to reach. So I had a, a lot of interviews with President Clinton when he was in office, and ha- was able to do a lot of stories involving talking to officials about to Bruce Reed and others about uh, uh, Gene Sperling, about the policies uh, that he wanted to develop and pursue. And that was great. And it's like we didn't we haven't had that for four years. We haven't had kind of concerted policymaking in the White House. So there's no one. And you probably couldn't interview the people about it in any case. I mean, he, but Bill Clinton, you know, uh, had some flaws, some personal flaws, but he had a focus on policy and what it meant to Americans as individuals that I thought was great and was a lot of fun to cover. Uh, obviously, also flaws as well that ended up besmirching what was a, a very you know strong record as president. Yeah, true. Very true. The George W. Bush, you say he was more like his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I had interactions with them late in the, in the transition in which they were incredibly kind to us. I've said this before here, and it means something to me right now because one worries about what's going to happen if Biden wins and what kind of transition we'll have if there'll be a transition. But he clearly saw himself as the trustee of these institutions, um, but uh, did not leave office as a popular president. Well, and continues to have be criticized for his decisions in going to war with Iraq, uh, something that has uh, cost our country so dearly. Uh, so, um, but so criticism for uh, those that policy decision, but respect for uh, him as a uh, someone who understood and protected American institutions, and uh, you know he's mostly kept his mouth shut the last four years, as did his father when his father left um left office uh but there is some thought that if there is a question about a peaceful transfer of power that george w bush could play a a role in addressing that just a word about the person that i served and what was it what uh, from the outside what was it like covering that administration well uh you know it was one of the things that's great about being a journalist is covering big things that happen and the election of Barack Obama was a big thing that happened uh, for our country. So in those cases, it's just a privilege to be able to see it up close. And someone who also came in with a um, uh, very deliberate uh, decision-making process about pursuing some big things, especially in, in those, those first two years when you had uh, control uh, of Congress as, as well. Uh, you know, one of the things I've been looking at over the past year is more about the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And that is uh, certainly a big thing uh, that President Obama and the Obama administration did. And in the wake of having to handle uh, the terrible economy, he inherited the economic crisis with the financial meltdown. So there was a, you know, he was an historic president and he was doing some big things. And that's, you know, all we really ask for as journalists. You're looking uh, at the Affordable Care Act, I assume, because I, I know you have a contract to do a book about Speaker mm-hmm. Pelosi. Tell me about that. Why did you decide to do it? And talk a little bit about her as a historic figure. Yes. Um, so I've been It's coming out in April. Um, everything's written except the last chapter, which is about 2020, <laughs> the year that wouldn't end. That <laughs> sounds perfect for a book about Pelosi. Everything's written but the last chapter. The chapter, yes, exactly. Uh <laughs> You know, uh, I wanted to, I, I, I like doing the Barbara Bush biography and I wanted to do, I wanted to do another book that was, um, that was about someone who had been consequential. Um, somebody I'd covered at least to some degree in the past so that I'd have kind of a running start and somebody who had, was, had enough of a history that maybe people would tell the truth about things that they wouldn't if it was contemporaneous. And I also wanted to do a book about, someone who had been overlooked or underestimated. And I thought all those things applied to Nancy Pelosi. She's less underestimated now after two years as the big Democratic counterpoint to President Trump. Um, But she has been historically, I think, underestimated. And she has just this, she has just this uh, incredible life story that I think has not really, not really been told. Yes. Well, her political savvy is congenital. Uh, and I don't think people recognize, they think of her as a 
you know, liberal effete from San Francisco, but she grew up with the ward politics <laughs> of Baltimore. Her father was the mayor. Her brother was the mayor. Uh, and you can see that. I asked her, what did you learn from your father on one of these podcasts? And she said, I learned how to count. She said, and I learned that uh, I hear you is not a yes. Uh, a nod is not a yes. Only yes means yes. Uh, and I thought that, that, that sums it up. And she knows her, she knows every member of that caucus, what makes them tick, what she needs to get their votes. She knows how to get, she is an amazing figure. And uh, we learned that, you know, we wouldn't have accomplished what we accomplished in the White House, but for uh, her and particularly the Affordable Care Act, uh, she deserves as much credit as, as, as anyone uh, other than perhaps Barack Obama uh, for it. Um, so, so Donald Trump, let's just finish uh, with this. What, what are the, uh, when the story is written on these four years of Donald Trump, and you're probably starting to think about that because you may have to write that story at some <laughs> point here, what, what would the story be? So I think some people tend to look at Donald Trump as kind of this figure who burst on the scene, dominated everything, Let's if he doesn't win re-election for four years, and then goes away. I think that is wrong or incorrect. I think uh, Donald Trump didn't create the situation in America that allowed his election. He recognized it and opened the door um, and intensified uh, some of the trends that we were seeing in our country. And I think when he leaves office that we don't snap back to some pre-Trump era. We're in a new post-Trump era where maybe President Trump will be out of office, but the voters who supported him uh, will still be around and they'll still have the the grievances and the unhappiness and the anger that led them to want to support such a disruptive president. That is not uh, happy news for a President Biden if he should win. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and President Biden, if he wins, uh, will have... A couple hard tasks, right? He'll have a hard he'll have a hard healthcare task yes. in trying to get control of the coronavirus. Big economic problems. Uh, you know, we're still what eleven million jobs short from where we were in January, and he'll continue to have a divided nation that includes both unhappy Trump supporters, but also the Democratic Party, as you know better than I do, has held it together to be against Trump. But there are big differences in the direction of the country that you see in the Democratic Party. And once a, new, a Democrat's in the White House, I think those differences are really going to come to the fore. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, well, I do. Um, you know, I think those differences are uh, a lot about um, means to an end than the end themselves. But they're non- nonetheless, they're they're pronounced. And he yeah, he's listen. This is the uh, task he's signed up for. But I used to say that uh, Barack Obama inherited the worst situation of any president since Franklin Roosevelt. And it's like one of those uh, baseball records in the uh, in the steroid age. You know, they they keep getting broken. Uh, Now you have to say uh, Biden will face uh, if he gets elected the most difficult task. You know, I'd say something else that if you want to be a journalist, you want to cover the biggest story, even if it's a terrible story. And if you want to be a public official, what better opportunity than to take over in a situation of huge challenges? I know, I think I once heard Bill Clinton yeah. express unhappiness yeah. about the fact that he had he had been president during peace and prosperity, and it made it harder to like, make a big difference. Well, 
um, certainly if Joe Biden gets elected in two weeks, he's going to make a big difference. Definitely got the opportunity. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And let's hope for the country, if that's what happens in the election, um, that he makes the most of it. Susan Page, it's always great to talk to you, uh, even if I have to sneak you into the White House mess. Uh, and uh, I don't feel we explored fully the oboe question. Yeah, we didn't get to the oboe question. Yeah. Do you still play? No, the oboe is like totally you either play the oboe every day or you don't play the oboe at all. I you played it for it about up. three months in junior high school and I found it o- almost impossible. I switched over to the clarinet. I, I found the oboe, uh, you know, really, really challenging. Uh, first of all, it required practice, which I didn't want to do. But you must have been pretty good. I loved I loved the oboe. I started it in the third grade. I went to music camp at KU, Kansas University, in the summers. It was. It sounds ridiculous now, but it was a hard decision to make between studying the oboe, which involved going to a music school, and studying journalism, which involved going to Northwestern. I presume you think you made the right decision. I do. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think so, too. All right, my friend. Great to be with you. David, it's a it's a privilege. I've known you when you were a political hack before you were a great (laughs) statesman. And it's been uh, it's been my pleasure from the start. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.